Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That is the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Monday, January the 30th, 2012, and that means one more day and January's gone, just like that. Boom, one of the dead months of winter is over, and that means one-twelfth of 2012. Gone. Are you working for freedom, independence, and liberty in your life? I hope so, because if you're not, you're getting less of it. As I say all the time when I talk to you about this stuff once in a while, it's a wake-up call. Every single person in life is on a sliding scale. You're on a sliding scale with your health. You're either getting more healthy or less healthy. You're on a sliding scale with your independence. You're becoming more independent or less independent. There is nothing static in the human existence. Everything moves at all times. And when you're not aware of it, when you're running on autopilot, what you end up doing is you end up sliding to the negative. Only by focusing on these things can we move forward As time moves forward, hopefully you're moving forward in that journey, and hopefully we can inspire you to do that here at the Survival Podcast. Today being a Monday, this is a listener feedback show. This is where you send me uh, articles or videos or commentary or questions, and you do that by email. You send it to jack at the com, and you put something in the subject line like article for Jack or video for Jack or question for Jack, and that helps me sort through the volumes and volumes of email that come in every week. Before we get to your emails, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Defense Consultants. Um, I'll tell you what. It's great to be armed. It's great to believe in the Second Amendment. It's great to know what you're doing with your firearms and believe that your individual training is good enough. But the reality is, it might not be. I'm not going to say it isn't, because every day around this country, somebody somewhere as an armed citizen defends themselves successfully. But a lot of times, people do not successfully defend themselves. And it always depends on the individual situation. And the more training you have, the more likely you are to come out on the other side unscathed, unharmed, or at least alive. And the more likely it is that whoever you're trying to protect comes out that way as well. So if you're going to carry firearms, get training to go along with it. Check out Fortress Defense Consultants. Remember, Frank Sharp and his crew will come to you if you can't go to Illinois. If you put together a group of about six people or more, find a local range and Frank get in touch with Frank, and he will come down and bring the training to you. How cool is that? Why don't you talk to your guys at work that you hang out with and say, hey, why don't we all get some training together? Why don't we get some real training? You get that from Fortress Defense Consultants. Next up today, the Berkey guy. That's Jeff Gleason over there, the Berkey guy. What are you going to get from the Berkey guy? How about this? How about Berkey light water filtration systems and Berkey water filtration systems in general? Yeah, the Berkey guy has Berkey water filtration systems. Isn't that freaking awesome? And I'll tell you why you should buy from the Berkey guy. You know, just this weekend, I went to a gun show down here in Hot Springs, uh, Arkansas, and there was a little uh, kind of survival niche, you know, mom-and-pop company down there selling food, storage, and all kinds of stuff, and they had Berkeys in there. So you can get a Berkey from them. You can get a Berkey from lots of people. Why go to the Berkey guy? Well, hell, he's the Berkey guy. Well, that, that should be reason enough, but I'll tell you the real reason why. I'm kind of you know, joking around here with this, but I have had Jeff as a sponsor. This will be his third year. February will be his third anniversary 
uh, is a sponsor of the show. In that time, I've had absolutely zero complaints from the audience about anything. What I've had is tremendous numbers of emails saying, hey, something went wrong. I just wanted you to know how Jeff fixed it. That's why you should deal with the Berkey guy, because he got to be the Berkey guy by making sure his customers were always taken care of. And water, folks, it's pretty important stuff. So make sure you have a Berkey filtration system in your home. If you don't have the, the uh, budget for it now, put it into your long-term plan. It is the best system and is the best bang for the buck that I've found and everything that I've looked at. Next up today, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Um, I actually uh, do put a lot of stuff out on Facebook and Twitter that does not make it. Uh, onto the show because I get too much stuff. So those are great ways to kind of stay in touch with what's going on out there. A lot of newsy stuff. I only put so much news stuff on the show, but I put a lot of it out in the social networks. I also have a lot of stuff coming for you guys on YouTube. I have a YouTube video coming up this week that's actually for my business podcast called Five Minutes with Jack. Uh, but I think, and I'll, I'll kind of you know inform you about it today. Uh, when I get to the question that I have on Google's new privacy policy, It might be helpful to you guys as well, so I might upload it to both locations. Um, but, uh, yeah, stay in touch with me on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook because you never know what I'm going to be putting out that just won't make it on the show. A lot of times I put things on Facebook and Twitter that I plan on bringing on the show, and then other stuff comes in and bumps it. So there you go. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. And you'll be supporting the show at 20 cents an episode, and you'll get over $150 worth of free ebooks. You'll get discounts to over 32 different vendors that are exclusive to members of the Support Brigade. And uh, if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior service, and you want to join the Members Brigade, send me an email prior to joining Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Give me the details of your service. Put something like military discount or service discount in the subject line. That way it will come to my attention much more quickly. And uh, I will give you a special discount to thank you for your service to our nation. Uh, with that, we've got all of the housekeeping wrapped up. Let's go ahead and get into the... Uh, The main topic today's show, which again are your email questions. This one comes to me from Steven. Steven says, thank you again for your amazing show and life philosophies. I love it. I'm an ex-Israeli infantry officer. I used to carry a 9mm CZ-75 as my officer's carry gun. I'm not very familiar with the 9mm. I, I am very, I'm not very familiar with the cal 9mm caliber and its effects. Uh, ever since I moved to the U.S. 18 years ago, I have taken with, I've been taken with the beauty of this country, and I've become an avid hiker. Recently, I had a close encounter with a black bear, which made me think about carrying when I hike. I realized that 9mm may not be enough to stop a charging black bear, and I'm considering either a 40 Smith & Wesson or a 45 ACP semi-auto handgun. My question is, which caliber would you have, would have more penetration to stop a black bear? Ah, oh, it doesn't really matter. I, I hate to be that blunt, but if you actually have a pissed off bear that wants to kill you, uh, you're undergunned with a 9mm, a 40 Smith, and a 45 each. Uh, I would probably prefer the 45. It's definitely going to have greater penetration, but you're really in kind of a bad way in any of those scenarios. Uh, the good news, black bear attacks are highly uh, unlikely. If you live in grizzly country, you've got kind of a different thing to worry about there. But black bears generally uh, do not attack unless you end up separating a sow from her cubs, and that can be a really bad thing if you do that. So awareness is one of the bigger things that you can do. I'm going to give you some gun suggestions here as a kind of last resort after I give you some common sense things you can do to avoid the confrontation in the first place. So number one, uh, just awareness. Pay attention when you're out there. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Listen Uh, for sounds. The thing about bears is as big as they are, uh, they can be really noisy, and at times they can be so quiet. 
Uh, it, it's it's all kind of relative. But if you pay attention in that way, you know, if you see cubs, if you happen to see cubs, I know they're cute, but just kind of back away pretty quick. Um, the next thing is, it, it would really help if you just didn't, you know, see the have the bear if the bears were aware of your presence. So you can do things like wear a bell, and that helps to. Uh, to uh to keep the bears away from you. The only problem is that it also scares away other wildlife that you might want to be looking for. It's not something I would do in black bear country. Certain times of the year it is something I might consider doing in grizzly country. Um your best way to fend off a bear is probably bear spray. Uh which is just a really big giant canister of pepper spray made for spraying at bears. Uh, and for that express purpose. And I think there's some states that have limits to how much, how large of a pepper spray canister you, you can have. And some of them actually, that doesn't apply to bear spray. And some it does. You have to check your local state. But bear spray is a pretty good deterrent. Uh, it's generally not something you want to spray on a bear. It's something you spray in front of a bear. If you believe the bear is not going to leave you alone, the bear is going to continue to come after you. And a lot of times just hitting kind of the wall of that stuff will send them on their way. So those are some things you can do with bears. But the big thing is just pay attention to what you're doing. And the odds of being attacked by a black bear, unless you do something stupid, are very, very low. The bad news is that in many cases when there have been attacks by black bears, um, black bears tend to actually go a little bit more postal, as it were, than grizzlies. Uh, a lot of people that have been attacked by grizzlies, once they got kind of weak and you know played dead either on purpose or because they were just exhausted, uh, they were kind of let let go and, and left alone. Where black bears have tended sometimes to continue the attack even in that situation. My gut is because the black bear is generally only attacking when it's completely totally pissed off. Um, so there's just more rage. I, I, you know, because they are more, they're, since they're less likely to attack, and this is pure hyperbole here, this is pure speculation on my part, but if, it, if, if a person, just think about people, the guy that snaps his cap like that, um, generally it gets mad all the time and would hit somebody all the time, generally would pop somebody in the mouth and go on about his business unless there's a fight to be had after that, because he's just that kind of an asshole. The, the person that like holds it in, you know, the little nerdy kid that gets picked on in school over and over and over and holds it in when he finally snaps and like grabs the bully by the ears and starts yanking and pulling and beating and kicking and scratching and, and doing whatever he can to over. Once he's uncorked, man, he's uncorked. And I think blackies, maybe that's, that's the case with them is when they're uncorked, man, they're uncorked. Now let's go back to the gun question. Um, all three, the nine, the 40 and the 45 would be better than nothing. And likely to help deter an attack. But if, if the bear's angry and you're trying to put it down, um, they're woefully inadequate. You're really looking at moving to something like a 44 revolver, a 44 magnum. If you wanted a, um, a semi-auto frame, if you just wanted that, then I would look at a 10 millimeter. And then you're looking at just under 41 magnum performance. And, and both of those choices are far better if you're really worried about, uh, black bears. Um, the big other thing, though, is a lot of times with a black bear, if you just feel they're being too aggressive, a shot in the air or into the ground would be also enough to d deter rather than actually shoot. Because let me tell you the, the rest of the story. If you ain't bleeding, if you ain't bleeding and you kill a black bear, uh, the game department is going to have some really tough questions for you and you might be in trouble. I mean, you can say the bear was going to attack you, but... <sighs> 
you know, unless the, there was actually an active attack ongoing, uh, you, you probably are going to have some really tough questions because uh, it's a common poacher excuse. What the poacher does is tries to get the bear uh, extracted, and if it can't, then they, they go ahead and they say, oh, I was, you know, so... You would, if this ever does happen, you would want to make the phone call immediately. And I would actually start with a call to 911. Uh, and I would probably say, you know, I felt this bear was attacking me. I don't know. Maybe this bear could even still be saved. Just kind of an ass covering thing there. But the gun itself, you're looking at kind of moving into that 44 Magnum. 357 Magnum, I'd consider undergunned. I really would. I would look at 10 millimeter 44 if you're actually concerned that you might have to, you know, use it to stop. Uh, the, the situation. Um, here's a, an interesting uh, email that came in, and it it kind of opens up a, a big question. Um, a judge has decided, and let me see who sent this in so I give credit where credit is due. Brian sent this in. Um, the judge has decided that an American can be forced to open and decrypt uh, a hard drive for police when they're being investigated for a crime. Uh, a judge ruled in Colorado today. This is one of these things where I look at this and I go, is this a Fifth Amendment issue? Um, because the Fifth Amendment, of course, says that you, you cannot be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against yourself. So you can't be made to testify. Well, what the defense here was is this person had a hard drive with some evidence on it that might incriminate them. And they said, it's my hard drive and it's my property and it's my communication on the hard drive, and I've saved it, and I've encrypted it, and if I am forced to decrypt it, in effect, I am being forced to testify against myself. As much as I would like to agree with that defense, because I don't like the government having uh, the ability to compel a person to do anything, if you want to prove somebody's guilty, prove their guilt in absence of their testimony. That's the entire purpose of the Fifth Amendment. I don't quite see it the same way here. Let me be clear what this is. Um, this is not that a police department can walk into your house for no reason whatsoever and say, decrypt your hard drive so I can read it. This is an active case where there was a warrant issued, and so you know you can't have search and seizure without a warrant, but a warrant was issued. All due course followed. Police went into the home and took evidence, including the computer. When they went to look what was on the computer, it was encrypted, and they can't break the encryption. So what the guy, what the judge is saying is basically, you can sit in a jail cell or you can decrypt the computer. This is a court-ordered decryption. Ah. Now, this is kind of a gray area. And to me, I can see where the law might come down justifiably on the side of forcing the decryption. Here's why. It's a search. It's a search with a search warrant. Uh, so we're not searching physical. We're searching electronic I mean, if there was no warrant here, if the, like the cops sat the guy down and said, we're going to beat you with a hose until you decrypt your computer, that's, that's no, you know, and if there was no, uh, no suspected crime here, if there hadn't been a search warrant issued, no, you know, just cause like, like if they just called the guy in for questioning as a material witness and said, we want to know what's, in, no, no, not at all. But since this was all done due course, to me, it's not much different than police coming into your home and saying, we have a search warrant to look for drugs. And then they look in your cabinets and they find a locked box. And they say, give us the key. And the guy says, I don't have a key. So they cut the lock off the box. They go in the box, find the drugs. Drugs are in your possession. Now, they have to make a case that you knew they were there, that you, you know, all the rest of that stuff for due process. But they've taken the drugs legally. And I don't think anybody 
would say that, you know, in our legal system, there's anything wrong with that. You might be someone that thinks pot should be legalized. If it was pot, thing, the guy should be let go. But legal, from the legal aspects of the question, you would say that that falls under it. So, this is interesting, though, because this person has the key to the box. And they're being ordered to use the key. And in this case, the cops can't use the bolt cutter to remove the lock. The encryption is too good. It's very interesting. And I, I, I'm really not sure where I stand on this one. Because on one hand, it is simply the recovery of evidence with a warrant. On the other side, there is some inkling. And now the judge disagrees with this completely. There is some inkling that, yes, by me being you know, comp compulsed to open the box, so to speak, I am, in fact, giving testimony against myself. I'd like to hear what you think about this one, because a lot of times the law does something, we just go, yep, and then a lot of times they go something, we just go, nope. This is one of those areas that requires some thought and further implications. Now, here's what the entrepreneur in me says. If I was a computer genius right now, I would be building an encryption program with a dual-key system. And that dual key system would take any file filed in a certain area. So I would have like this area where I could file stuff that I never wanted anybody to see. And if I were ever compelled to give the, the decryption key, I would give key B. And key B, at the same time that it decrypted all the data, would wipe all the data in the sectors and completely fully wipe it into a point that it was unrecoverable. Now, could they prove you did that? Maybe, but they would never be able to get the information. It would be a moot point at that point. Um, just a thought, just a thought. That's the entrepreneur in me. Where there's a demand, somebody will build something to fill it. Okay, next thing came in today. I got tons of people asking me about Google's new privacy policy, and people are pretty freaked out about it. Let, let's talk a little bit about what they're doing and why. Uh, Google has a tremendous number of products uh, and services out there. Google Plus is like their counter to Facebook. Google Calendar, Gmail, Uh, their search engine itself has search engine functionality and your results and what you do and your user behavior is tracked. They also have a program called Analytics that's on, I'd say, probably 80% or more of websites, especially commercial websites, because it's probably the best um, analytical data available. It's the best best product if you want to track what's going on. As a marketer and a website owner, it's it's the best. Uh, so you want to use the best, so it's there. But that, of course, is collecting massive amounts of data. And a user that searches on Google and ends up going to a site using analytics, they have a way they can get information on the user from two different ways. One, how you behaved on Google's website, especially if you're logged in your Google account, but then very advanced behavioral characteristics of how you've behaved on this third-party website that happens to be running Google Analytics. Well, they also, then, if you have Gmail and you log in your Gmail account, they have access to your email. I don't know if you realize that or not, but they do. They can content search your email. Um, that's the one that's creepy to me. Uh, I believe that email should be completely secure and for your eyes only, and those who you choose to share it with. This is a reason I do not use Gmail, and I think a lot of the concerns that people have over this new privacy policy, and of course as preppers and as people that are concerned with our liberty, we're naturally sensitive to stuff like this, and sometimes to be fair, we're oversensitive to stuff like this, and I think maybe a little bit of that here. But don't use Gmail is what my message is, and don't use Yahoo Mail. Uh, buy a domain name. 
Get a, get some, uh, at least email hosting, even if you're not a web person, set up a pop account, use like a, a product like Microsoft Outlook or something like that, and pull your email off your freaking server and delete what you don't want seen for in perpetuity and maintain access solely to your own email. And that would, that would, to me, that would help a lot here. The email portion of this is what I don't like. And I can't tell you exactly what they do to look at your email content, but I can tell you that by the way the privacy policy is written, it would be inferred that they do. So what the new policy is, though, is they've always done all of these things. But basically, your behavior on Google Plus was independent of your behavior on Google Search Engine, which was independent of your behavior with your actions with Google Calendar, which was independent of your, you know, your 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 shopping on on Google's uh, whatever their shopping thing is called. Uh, it was and it was also independent of let's say what you did on YouTube and watching YouTube videos. What they've done now is all of the all of this information is now able to communicate with each other across Google's platform. So that they can take a user that goes to Google, searches for something, ends up on YouTube, watches a video, clicks a link that's inside that video, ends up on another website, and then shares it with other people on Google+, and they can create kind of a profile of that user. Now, this is the thing. Most people would go, ooh, they're trying to figure out what we're doing. I'll tell you what they're trying to do. They're trying to give you more targeted advertising. They're trying to make their advertising more valuable to the people that are spending money so that when you search for something like Jaguar, Google will know based on all of the behavior that you've committed over you know all this time, you either mean a cat or a car. And they're going to serve you content both in the organic search, the normal search, and the advertised search that are consistent with what you were probably looking for. Because if you get two people and both search for Jaguar, odds are one is looking for a car and one is looking for a cat. Which one is it? Well, if you're always on cat websites, you watch videos about cute kitty cats and stuff like that, uh, you have an age-based profile where people know that you're under 25, you're currently in school, and you do research on animals, you probably are looking for a cat. Now, that does not mean some beanhead up at Google is up there doing this stuff and really coming down and looking at you as an individual and saying, let's let's tailor this. It's all done by computers, and generally speaking, this is about trend analysis, not individual analysis. That makes me feel better, and the way that I understand this as a whole makes me feel better, and by eliminating something like Gmail, I feel a lot better. Here's my bigger concern from a civil libertarian standpoint. I am not that concerned with what Google will do with this data because Google doesn't have the time to worry about what John Smith in Denver, Colorado that lives at you know 303 Fake Street is doing right now or what his life's about. All they want is John Smith to, to spend his time and his dollars through the Google platform uh, as, a, as a trend so that they have as many John Smiths as possible. They're out there to make money. However, what's to prevent the government from saying we would like to look at this data We want all the information you have on John Smith in Denver, Colorado. And some judge from saying, yeah, that's okay. And now we have billions of people across the world who have that kind of a profile. That's a concern for me. But again, my bigger concern is email. If you do something on Google+, it's public, folks. If you leave a comment on, on, on YouTube, it's public. I mean, any semblance of the fact that you have privacy when you're out posting on public forums or viewing public websites or whatever, it's just it's nonsense, and it's not going to happen. Um, so don't really obsess about that component of it 
And, and like I said, I'm going to put out a video that's more of the marketer side of this, but it will explain kind of how this thing works and what it does and why it does it. And if you have concerns about it, maybe that video will help you. So even if I just do it for five minutes with Jack, when I put it out, I'll make it known on the blog and you know the website and Facebook and Twitter that that video is available. Uh, next question, I am going to uh, summarize this, this, this gal's question. This is from Heather. Heather's first question is about portable heaters and concerns with safety and do I have any specific recommendations. Um, the two types of portable heat that I recommend for your home are either kerosene heaters or pro, you know, portable propane heaters, generally the ones that use the small uh, one-pound uh, canisters. Uh, the As far as safety concerns, generally speaking, these things should be run with at least a window at least cracked. The propane ones, just about all of them, and this is what and I don't, I'm going to give you, I'm not going to give you specific recommendations for product here or anything, but uh, most of the propane based heaters have a sensor on them uh, for CO2. And if it's exceeded, they just shut themselves off. So they're inherently safe when used as directed. Kerosene heaters, uh, a big concern with them has been if they get knocked over, they can spill kerosene, catch everything on fire. Uh, modern kerosene heaters are designed where if they're tipped over, they extinguish themselves immediately. Uh, they also, I've never had problems with them, that's all I can say. Uh, you do want to make sure that you control the length of your wick, because if you get it too high, it'll smoke really bad, and that's not a fun experience. Uh, but when, when I had lost the job in Pennsylvania for a while, um, we got a couple kerosene heaters to supplement our heat. Cause we had those baseboard electric heaters, and those were just ridiculously expensive. And we used those consistently, and we never had any problems. Uh, I would tell you that the advantage to the propane propane heat is that the, the units are smaller. It's easy to store a lot of fuel. Those little one-pound canisters are highly available everywhere. The storage life is infinite. They're completely clean. In other words, you can't spill them. They don't make a mess. They're not oily. They don't leave a residue. But they're nowhere near as powerful as one good floor-size uh, kerosene heater can heat half a house pretty easily. So it depends on how cold it gets and what storage facilities you have. If you were in an apartment, I'd say propane hands down. Small house without a kind of a big pantry or a basement or anything like that, you're probably still looking at propane um, because it's just cleaner and smaller and more compact and easier to move around. Uh, if dad's gone a lot and mom might have to do it by herself and mom's a smaller frame woman, uh, those kerosene heaters when full are pretty heavy to move around. A five-gallon container of kerosene is pretty heavy. You need to take the, 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 the heater outside when you fuel it. Um, you, know, you can get a siphon pump and all, but it really should be outside or at least like in a cellar or something. I wouldn't fuel it uh, in, in, a, in a living room. You spill that stuff on your rug, it's ruined. So you get more heat, and I think you get more efficiency, and you get actually more cost-effectiveness from the kerosene, but you get better ease of use and more cleanliness, and I think more inherent safety with the portable propane. The second question that Heather had is... Um, She says I talk a lot about getting the wife on board with this stuff, but she's got a totally different situation. Her husband's uh, prior service military, likes all the outdoor stuff, but the whole self-reliance, self-sufficiency thing isn't real sexy to him. And she wants to know, how did I first decide this lifestyle was important? What was it that got me there from a man's perspective? Uh, and what can make the day-to-day -day prepper lifestyle more attractive to someone who has a hard time Uh, committing to what he wants to have for lunch, let alone committing to helping take care of chickens. Uh, well, the first thing is to, and this goes both ways, is pick the stuff they do like and focus on that first, and that starts you on the walk. How did I get to where I believe that this was important? Well, I was born with it. I was born with it because I was born in a place where you did this stuff every day. 
And if you didn't do it, then you went without stuff in the, in the, like in the wintertime. I mean, I tell the story of the ant and the grasshopper because my grandfather, when I was a little kid, used to sit me on his knee and tell me that story and then go take me down in the cellar and say, this is how we're ants. Look at all the stuff that we put up from the garden this year. Now we're going into fall and we put all these fish in the smokehouse and we put all this other fish in the freezer and now it's time to go hunting and, and we'll be bringing that stuff home and we'll be making sausage and jerky. And by the time it gets really, really cold and hunting season's over, we'll have enough surplus to get through. I mean, so it's just inherent in me as a person because I was, you know, raised that way. But I had my sabbatical. I had about 10 years where I got all, you know, first I went in the military and then I got out of the military and I got what they call successful. And I started having this stuff called money. And I was a poor kid from the coal region and now I had money. And I had lots of money. And then I got lots of debt, but I got lots of stuff. And I kind of forgot it all. But I can tell you the absolute moment that this all started. And it was a multi-year walk after that before I came full circle. But I can tell you that the Survival Podcast didn't really start in June of 2008. That's, that's when it officially began. The Survival Podcast is an extension of my life. It is who I am. I completely open myself and share myself with you guys every day. I hide nothing, including my flaws and my mistakes, occasionally my, my rants and my anger, uh, the good and the bad. And that is why I think it's been successful, because I think the members of the community do that with each other as well. And that has to be genuine, and that has to come from a place that's much deeper, that's something that doesn't happen just one day because you pick up a recorder and start doing it. And for me, that date was September 11th, 2001. Uh, I had just landed in Pittsburgh Airport, and I think this actually might help your husband if you have him listen to this. I really do, because it'll put some things in perspective. So I land at the airport in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and it's a beautiful day. And I walk down to the uh, carousel to get my bag, and son of a gun, first, this, as soon as I walk there, the carousel turned on, and what never happens happened. There's my bag, first one out, boom, pick it up, walked out. Sales rep's waiting for me in his van, and we're going to go off and cut deals and slay dragons and do the stuff salespeople do uh, when they're in town with their with their, their sales reps. Turn the radio on, and we hear that a plane has hit one of the World Trade Center towers, and we kind of made a joke about it. I, I'm ashamed to say now, because... We didn't know what it was. We figured some drunk on his Cessna and crashed into a thing. And, you know, my, my rep Matt was like, there's probably some guy with a big old stogie sitting up at his desk and here comes a plane. And, and then we heard a second plane hit and it wasn't so funny anymore. And then we heard the Pentagon and he turned to me and he says, you know, this means we're at war, right? I said, yeah, I guess it does. And then the one went down in a field just outside of Pittsburgh. And then I was frantic to get in touch with my wife so she could let my son know that I was safe because I figured they would tell them in the schools. And then I spent the next two days in a hotel room, miles and miles away from my family, unable to get on a plane and go home, unable to rent a car for two days. I was finally able to get a car rental, a one-way rental, so I could drive home. And I spent those two days, those two nights, knowing my wife was, she's such an emotional person. She was, she was crying for all of these people and their families. Uh, you know, she was falling asleep and, and dreaming about seeing the people jump out of the building rather than burn. And then, uh, and then waking up and thinking, oh, maybe it was just a dream, and it wasn't, of course. And I had to put my, to listen to my son on the other end of the phone. Ask me one of the most tough questions I've ever had to answer as a father in my life. He said, "Can a war come here?" Because they were already talking about the war, and I had to give him an honest answer. It just did, and I don't know what it means. But the way you're asking, Matt, no, I don't think, I don't think you have to worry about that, but. 
we do have to live life a little bit differently now. I didn't even know what that meant yet. Now, this was before any of my questions or concerns about 9-11 came up, and I don't want to go down that road. If any of you conspiracy theorists start, I'm just going to, I'm just not doing that with this. This is not what this is about. I have my questions, definitely, but that's not what this is about. This is about the, the experience. So then I got home, and soon after that, my son and I built a fire pit, and we planted a garden, and we started growing food, and on weekends, instead of him playing video games and me zoning out in front of the TV, we'd get the whole neighborhood together and had a bonfire, and cooked food, and we went fishing, and we went hunting, and I went back to my roots, and it felt good. It felt good. It took another two years before I got off the road, actually three years before I got off the road permanently, and we moved back to Texas, and I made a career switch, and I cut my salary in half, and I did, just so I wouldn't ever have to leave again. It took another couple of years for me to figure out exactly what I wanted to do with my life and how I wanted to set it up and get our place in Arkansas, so that was a part of a long-term plan. But this is what I've learned in that. I lived 10 years of what they call the good life in corporate America, and I spent those 10 years never fully in control of my life. I lived quite a few years as an entrepreneur with a lot more control in my life, but until I got on the bandwagon of being self-sufficient and self-reliant, there were always choices that were made for me by other people. And I believe being a free man means being able to stand up and make my own choices for myself, for my family, for my community, the way that I see fit. Other people may make different choices. That's their right. That's their freedom as well. And we'll work with the people we get along with and we'll find other, you know, the other people we do not, you know, see it eye to eye with. They'll work in their groups and eventually that's a pretty great country to live in. It's what they used to call America. So to me, the biggest reason that you could reach a man with why self-reliance, self-sufficiency are important are because it's the only thing that actually, actually equals freedom. The former military man fought for freedom. Stood up for freedom. Well, now stand up for it in your life, and your family's life, because it's worth it. Next one comes in from Alex. Alex and Austin here. How do I turn a hobby farm orchard into an agricultural business where I would be allowed to deduct my expenses and not have the IRS classify it back after a few years to a hobby farm if I show a paper loss year over year? Background, I have 11 acres in central Texas, of which two acres is pasture, in which I built several swales and berms this weekend with the intention of planting many fruit trees and native berries. I've read that if you intend to run an agricultural business from your land but do not show a profit after three years, then the IRS classifies you as a hobby farm and you can no longer deduct your expenses. Three years would not seem enough for a fruit orchard since many varieties can take five years to yield fruit to have surplus to sell at market. Additionally, the startup cost would be quite high for an endeavor, uh, endeavor like this. I would appreciate any insight you have on this. And I think it would be great if you could bring someone on the show to talk about the topic, converting your hobby farm into agricultural business. Marjorie Wildcraft may be a good resource for this. I don't know about Marjorie being a good resource for this. Marjorie doesn't grow anything to sell to anybody except trade with neighbors. Marjorie is self-sufficient for herself and her family. Um, she's not in farming as a business. I could ask her. I bet there's somebody else out there who's done it. Well, let me give you my thoughts on it. Well, first of all, um, you get deductions based on you know expense. And if you spent three years putting this orchard in, and you took all the deductions of the upfront costs out of your mainline income, then they've paid for themselves with deductions. And if you don't yield a profit for a couple of years, and you go to a hobby farm status, and then when you start to yield a profit, then you start then there's no problem. I see you, you're seeing a problem where there isn't one. You lose the deductions, but at that point you've absorbed the expenses. I don't see you doing a lot more planning at that point. And then there's the other side of this. 
if you if you're doing this just for tax deductions, fine. And you got to figure out some way to make a little bit of profit so you can get deductions for all the other stuff, right? You know, and and here's what profit is: profit's a dollar. Profits a dollar. So if you have 11 acres and you're you're going to be doing a nursery or an orchard and trying to grow fruit and nuts and stuff for market, well, you you that's a lot of planning to go buy all your trees for. So you kind of need to get in with you know how to do rootstocks and grafting and uh, certain trees can be started from seed and do you want to do some of that and uh, other plants, bushes, shrubs, vines that you can propagate and then you have a much more immediate product. You have plants to sell. And that's a great business to be in right now, and it's a much higher margin business than selling a basket of peaches five years down the road. So you can take that business and make that selling of the plants something you can do as well. You also need to, to, to you know, if you're gonna, if you're serious about turning this into a commercial business enterprise, you don't have five years to make your first profit. You just don't. You're not going to be able to do that. Now, if you want to do like a kind of a set it and forget it. Just get the deduction, get all of the permanent plantings in, and then kind of let it run itself until it matures to a point, and then begin to manage it, and then be putting more money and expense in, and then run it like a business. I guess you can do that, but it's a tough, long haul. So what you have to start thinking of is, how can I make money next year, or maybe this year, with this 11 acres? So when you put a bunch of trees in the ground, and they're all little, they're eventually they're going to canopy out, and they're going to put down a lot of shade, and all the rest of that ground is not going to be really good for growing many things. Hopefully, if you do it permaculture-esque, you'll still be able to grow a huge variety of things, and I would definitely recommend that. But in the meantime, you have all that space where you can plant things that are more of an annual crop, uh, or a biannual crop, like uh, Apis Americana groundnut. It's a great cash crop. It's almost impossible to find. If you have it, you're the only one. Um, there's a lot of things that you could do in the interim. So the, 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 the question is really kind of problematic in of itself is basically how do I, how do I maintain losing money for five years and still get a deduction for it? Well, you don't. And you don't stay in business by losing money for five years. Three years of losing money is about as much as anybody could ever possibly afford. Now, I know it's kind of a paper loss for you there, but I love the suggestion. How do we go from hobby farm to true commercial enterprise? The guy that it would be best to bring on for that, and it'd be tough to get him back for a repeat because he's so busy and so in demand, anybody might be Joel Salatin. But if anybody out there in the audience, if you've, I don't care if you were ever a hobby farmer or not, if you've ever made it happen, you decided one day I want to go into farming and run nurseries and play, the whole nine yards, and you went out and bought four or five acres, ten acres, and you did it and you made it work, get in touch with me. I'd love to have you on to talk about it. Um, The next one is really, this concerns me. Not because I think anybody did anything wrong, but I think that we are on track for war with Iran. Uh, I know a lot of people have been saying that, but I feel like not only are we on track for it, like there's people in our government have decided it needs to happen, and they're trying to provoke it, and they're trying to make it happen, and they're doing some stupid shit. Uh, like sanctions on Iran. Do you know what? When you put sanctions on a company's economic input now, but I know we can't have Iran have a nuclear bomb, whatever. Right, sanctioning their oil sales so they can't sell oil so that their people starve will not help you. The, the, the idiots in our government think if we do this long enough, the people there will rise up and overthrow their own government because they'll be pissed off at them. No, they're going to hate you and me. When you're hungry, you hate the person that's the direct cause, not the indirect cause. And when your mullah is saying, hey, what we got to do is sell some oil? We could have food on the tables again here, but the Americans won't let us. They did this through the UN. So, That's, you know, and they're doing it with financial sanctions. 
So they're basically like saying, we're not going to let the money flow so nobody can pay you for the oil. So what does India said? India says, you know, we need that Iranian oil. We're not all about this sanctioned stuff. We don't want this. We need millions and millions of barrels of oil. So I'll tell you what, Iran, you can still sell us oil. We'll pay you in gold. And it looks like people like China and Russia are on their way to making that same agreement. This is on uh, a website called the Becca File. Uh, let me read a little bit of it to you. India is the first buyer of Iranian oil to agree to pay for its purchase in gold instead of the U.S. dollar. Debeka files intelligence and Iranian sources report exclusively. Those sources expect China to follow suit. India and China take about 1 million barrels a day, or 40% of Iran's total exports of 2.5 million barrels. Both are superpowers in terms of gold assets. Uh, by trading gold, New Delhi and Beijing enable Tehran to bypass upcoming freeze of its central bank's assets to the oil embargo, which the European Union foreign ministers agreed to impose Monday, January 23rd, the EU currently buys 20% of Iran's oil exports. Okay, so here's what's, here's what's really happened here. This is how sleazy the EU's being here. The EU has wanted to do this for a long time. They've basically stockpiled oil and found other contracts before they sanction Iran. Because, you know, if they just sanctioned Iran and they just didn't have any oil, so they want their cake and they want to eat it too. So they want to tell Iran, we won't buy from you and we'll make it impossible for other people to buy from you, but let us sort our other stuff out first because we don't want to sacrifice in this or anything. So that's what's going on. Now, there are people out there that are so blind, and I'm a patriot, but I'm not a blind patriot, that are so blind and say, look at these scummy Indians agreeing to pay the Iranians in gold. What do you think they're supposed to do? Do without so that you can feel good about yourself? Um, I think any two countries should be able to trade any two assets they choose, any time they choose, as long as they're not endangering somebody else by doing it. Iran selling gold to India and India giving gold, or Iran giving oil to India and India giving gold to Iran do not pose a danger to anyone. You say, well, they're going to make a nuclear bomb. That has nothing to do with gold and oil. It doesn't. They're making a bomb because they're afraid we're going to invade them and to their credit, they're Seeming to be right here. I don't think there are a bunch of really logical guys running that country or anything. They're not people I want to sit down and play a poker game with. But apparently our administration wants to play a pretty high-stakes poker game with them. The reality is they're an insignificant nation. And we're turning them into a significant nation by our actions. This is where people go, I like Ron Paul, but I disagree with his foreign policy. Man, everything that guy said was going to happen with every one of our foreign policies up till now has come to pass perfectly. And he's predicting some pretty dark stuff if we continue on this path with Iran. Um, you know, Iran has an ally in India. They really do. India is friendly with us and friendly with Iran, but hey, they get their oil from Iran, not from the U.S. Um, they like to, you know, staff, staff people to handle our call center business and all, but when it comes down to it, they got to run, they got a country run. The Chinese are far more aligned with Iran than they are with us. So are the Russians. So it's not, so when we start, poking this thing, we're basically setting ourselves up opposite from China, Russia, and India. Well, there's a few billion people you don't want to piss off with advanced technology and capability of advanced warfare. Right now, the Council on Foreign Relations is talking about, well, we might just have to go in there and surgically strike and blow up some stuff in Iran and expect the, expect the, the, the pushback that we're going to get. Expect the fact that, that they'll retaliate and we just might have to absorb that. Absorb that means accepting the fact they might sink one of our carriers in the freaking uh, straits. Let me tell you what, we will not accept that. If Iran sinks a carrier, we will blow the hell out of them. 
But what choice will they have? If we surgically strike their country, don't you think that the people in power will... We're, we're, we're playing a game where these people are boxing, being boxed... I'm not saying they're good guys, right? But we are methodically boxing them into a corner where eventually they're going to have to start the fight that they don't want in the first place. They'll talk about... They, they don't think Iran really wants a war with the United States. Nobody wants a war with the United States. Nobody. But we're going to force them into one. And the thing is, who will we drag along with us? Russia's already said they'll stand with Iran. What exactly that means, I don't know, but I prefer not to find out. Maybe, maybe, maybe the smartest thing for us all to do will be let other countries run their own business and understand that we have enough defensive and offensive capability that no one is a legitimate threat to us until we go out and we weaken ourselves by agitating people that would otherwise leave us alone. I know a lot of you disagree with that. But read this article, and I want you to think about this. Whether you agree with me or not, does this action make war more or less likely? This action, India circumventing the embargo by paying with gold, does it make the war more or less likely? Well, war's not good for anybody, folks. It really isn't. I had a person recently say, I hate anti-war people. I'm like, you're an idiot. It's like, what? You're an idiot. If you're not anti-war, you're an idiot. What are you, pro-war? You want war? Well, I don't want war, but when there has to... Well, that's not... That's that's what anti-war is. Anti-war is, I don't want war unless there's no other alternative. And uh, to me, I'm no threat to you until I think you are a legitimate threat to me or you demonstrate that you're a threat to me. Maybe we should live our lives that way. There were these guys that wanted us to do that at one time. They They told us that was... What we needed to do if we wanted freedom in this country to last. I, I'm having a hard time remembering who those guys were. I think they were named people like Washington and, and Jefferson and, and Adams that said we should have tr commerce with all and alliances with none. Is that is that an accurate quote from our founding fathers? Is, is, is that really what they wanted for our country? We are so far from what those guys wanted for our country. I think... Um, You know, there's an old joke that if uh, if Washington and Adams and Jefferson and Franklin and all were around today, they would have been shooting a long time ago, and they would have went to the Capitol over the Federal Reserve and the privatization of the public money and everything else. But I'll tell you what else they would probably do. They'd probably be whooping some ass in our streets from some apathetic uh, people who have allowed this stuff to go on and just don't seem to care. I think that we have... Um, a, a real statement of erosion in this country where we are as much the part of the problem as the government is, as a people in general. I know not you individually, but you probably get what I'm saying. Let's go on to another one. I, this next one, when I first read it and realized the guy was serious, he might actually do it this way, I, I nearly had a heart attack. Um, this is from uh, Alan. I'm not putting you down or nothing, man, but geez, it just... I really did. I was like, oh, no. was it old Fred Sanford? I'm coming, Elizabeth. Right? That's how I felt, right? Um, I'd like your advice regarding improving the condition of some rather stony but reasonable soil. Presently, it has usual wild grasses, weeds, etc. growing. The land is level, well-drained, and has good solar exposure. My aim is to get it to a point where it can be used as part of a four-crop rotation growing bed. The area I need to work on is approximately 100 feet by 100 feet. After looking around, there seems to be three options available here. One, raised beds. Imported topsoil costs about $10,000 for the soil, $4,000 to truck it in, and $2,000 for the wood. That's when I had my Fred Sanford moment, $10,000 to buy soil. Um, have the existing soil screen commercially, big variety machines and a bobcat, then add manure, et cetera, to it, condition it later, uh, rotovator. I'm still working on costing this. 
Three, do it myself. Build my own manual screening device. Buy used cement mixer. Screen condition as I go. Cheap, but will take lots of work. As a person who knows more than I do about these things pertaining to soil, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Don't do any of those is what I'm initially thinking. Now, I don't know what you want to crop as far as what you want to grow, that type of thing, so I'm not sure here. Um, you know, if you want to turn this into a wheat field that you, you grow one piece each, and this doesn't seem like that kind of an operation that you want to do to me. Um, so here's the thing. Rocks are not a problem. Rocks are good. Rocks are sources of minerals. Uh, rain and d different types of acid and alkali interactions with those rocks release minerals. Uh, they release minerals deep in the subsoil. And then little plants with long tap roots like comfrey go down there and mine those minerals and bring them up and make them bioavailable. So this is what I would do. Okay, your soil sucks. You need to improve it. So you need to pick stuff that you can grow that grows very, very quickly in the type of soil that you have and grow your own mulch and your own biomass. And start chopping and dropping like a fiend, man. You need to be growing as much stuff as you can and putting it right back to the ground and build the soil up. I, I can't see spending $10,000 for soil. Um, uh, in fact, we're actually looking at, what, $16,000 to make a 100 by 100 foot area fertile. Um, you, it seems to me you could go buy a piece of fertile land for less than that. Uh, if you were buying land for, oh, I don't know, $5,000 an acre, you could buy, you know, $5,000 an acre for good quality land to grow on, you could buy three acres that's already good quality soil. I, if you're gonna work with a piece of land like this, you have to use nature and you have to grow the organic matter and you have to put the organic matter down. Now, if you want to go out and take certain big rocks and get rid of them and all fine, but screening a hundred square feet or a thousand square feet, Man, um, you can't afford to do it that way. Now, there are some things that you can do to help kind of speed things along. One would be uh, see if there is a, a, a compost facility anywhere near you, a, a commercial, not a commercial one, more of a, uh, let's call it a, uh, a, a city-run one, like I have here in Hot Springs. If you have something like that, a public facility is what I'm talking about, where you can get compost very cheap or for free, you, know, you could spread out a couple inches across a 100 by 100 area. Uh, you could do that with a pickup truck. And you could do that over time and start to build that initial organic layer up and plant into that and then keep dropping material to the ground. But you need to grow your mulch. Now, I'd like to help you further. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something here, Alan. I'm gonna tell you this. If you go, if you send me an email with more info from Alan in the subject line, I'll be on the lookout for it. I wanna know exactly what it is that you're gonna rotate through here. What is your actual plan long term what are you going to be growing and because like it says like a four-year cycle or so i i need to know what you mean by that to give you further advice but i'm going to tell you that i believe you could get 99 of this done by just growing your own organic matter and save a fortune and take the money that you unless you're going to be growing some kind of like high dollar crop or something and i just don't know what you're going to grow on a thousand square feet um, that would, that would, you know, make, that would ever give you a payback, uh, like that. It, it just, it, it doesn't really make sense to me. And I actually think you can end up with much better quality soil doing it this natural way, whether than trying to import it. Um, so, uh, so get back with me, Alan. I'll see what I can do to go further on that one for you. Um, last week I talked to you about something called SOPA and PIPA 
which were online privacy issues that have been shelved for now in the Senate and the House because the votes aren't there to, to pass them. And there are some real concerns about, you know, basically breaking the Internet and ruining free information exchange. Well, I've got a lot of emails this week. It seems like when this came out, people started looking into it, and there's something called ACTA, A-C-T-A. All these things, all these little clicky names. But ACTA is... Uh, is like an international version of this. It's called the Anti-Counterfeiting Trade Agreement. It was signed by multiple countries, including the U.S., in October 2011. There isn't a lot of information available, but it looks like your Internet provider could be held liable for enforcement and may be expected to terminate the Internet connection for repeat allegations of copyright infringement. Um, so here's the issue with this. And there's a couple... Places you can get more. The EFF, of course, is all over this. There's a pretty good write-up in Wikipedia that gives all the specifics and background. Wiki's not always the greatest thing in the world to find information, but the one on the uh, the anti-counterfeiting trade agreement is is really good. I don't have a lot to say about this yet because I just was made aware of it last week. And the reality is, and this is the big concern, we don't know what the hell it says. Uh, there's been numerous requests. Senator Bernie Sanders, as always, a uh, guy I don't always agree with, but he seems to always at least want disclosure to the people, has made a formal request that the text be made public. Uh, quite a few other people have done that. The Obama administration has said, no, we're not going to do that. It could compromise national security if we make this public. Well, what the hell could compromise national security if what you're worried about is counterfeiting on the Internet? Um, so I don't know yet. I will tell you this. I will tell you this, if this thing gets enforced in our country, this is basically, here's what the, the Tin Hatters are saying, you know, Obama already signed it. I'm not sure Obama's the one that signed it. Somebody from America signed it. It may, may or may not have been Obama. I can't confirm or deny that right now. I haven't been able to find that out this morning yet. Um, but it's a treaty. It is a treaty. Uh, the, the UK signed it. And guess what? It doesn't mean a damn thing in the UK unless Parliament uh, ratifies it. This thing has got to go to the floor of the House and the Senate for ratification. And that's one, one thing you should be doing right now if you're concerned about this. And you can't say, I hate it, I love it, I don't like it. You don't know because you don't know what's in it. That's the problem. You need to be con contacting your congressional clowns and saying, hey, look, guys, here's what you guys need to do. You guys need to, to make it known that we're paying attention to this and it damn well better not be enforced in our country as an unratified treaty. Because, um, you know, our Constitution is kind of the guidebook on this. And I said the House and the Senate, it doesn't. It's just the Senate, right? So the, the, the Constitution, our guidebook says, okay, President, you want to initiate a treaty with another nation? Then this is the way it works. It takes you and it takes a two-thirds vote. That's about 66 senators. And I'm telling you that if one inkling of this thing gets enforced in this country without the Senate ratifying it, it is grounds for all-out freaking revolt. Because it is a complete... I mean, we talk about them trampling the Constitution all the time, but it would be a direct in-the-face, just ignoring the very requirement. This is why when people send me the email that just comes up every once in a while, it has to go around, Obama is going to ban guns in the United States by signing a treaty on small arms. Can't happen. It can't happen. And, and, and reality is it can't happen here either. But here's the thing. My concern isn't that they'll do what I said and try to enforce it without ratification. My concern is this thing will go to the Senate. It will be still told to the American people that we can't read it 
The senators will get to read it with their super secret, top secret clearances that allow them to do things like legally inside trade in the stock market and become multi-millionaires uh, while they're there supposed to be doing our business. And they'll read it and they'll know what's in it. And these ass clowns will pass it. I, that's why I'm more concerned about this than the small arms treaty. I think these idiots might actually pass this thing. And um, it, it, it just doesn't seem like a good idea because how can you have a law agreed to on an international level without me knowing I'm expected to abide by this law, but I don't get to know what it is? Uh-uh. That's not how business gets done in this country. Unfortunately, it seems like it is how business gets done, but we need to make a stink about this one. We really need to make a stink about this one, folks. Uh, this is one, it's not a for or against thing. It's a disclosure thing at this point. Um, we do not, you, you, this is, I, I almost never tell you what to say. Because I want, you, your opinion is what's more important than my opinion. But in this instance, I think we can unify and we can say, we do not want our president and our, our government negotiating internationally with laws that will affect us as individuals, citizens, and business people in this country without knowing what they're saying and what they're agreeing to, and you damn well better not support it until I know what it says. This this one sucks to high heaven. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one, because I, I just can't say any more right now, because I'm being completely honest with you when I say I don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows what's in it, unless there's enough of it been leaked out there. If it has been leaked, get the stuff to me, man. I'll make it known. So last uh, two weeks ago, I had a brain fart. I was talking about interoperability between 223 and uh, 308 on the AR platform and saying you could buy one and switch to another one later. And I wasn't real clear what I meant. And I really don't even know what the hell I was thinking about. And it was when I was doing like four shows in one day and I brain farted and I admitted it and said it was a dumb thing and I know better. Um, now, here's the thing though. You can do it. You can go from a 308 down to a 223. Uh, there's always been ways to kind of do it with some kind of tinkering around and stuff, but there's a platform now that's specifically designed for it. It's the Colt SP901. Um, apparently, it was out at SHOT Show, and I just didn't get to see it, which is too bad. Uh, but here's a little write-up on it on Colt's website. Be it prairie dog hunting in Texas, whitetail hunting in Maine, or elk hunting in Colorado, the Colt SP901 is the rifle for the hunt. Chambered in the classic 308 Winchester cartridge. Which of course is 7.62 by 51 NATO. The SP901 is the perfect choice for medium to large size game animals. Exceptional accuracy is assured by its full floated 16 inch chrome line barrel. A one piece monolithic upper receivable suitable for mounting the optics of your choice. Keep the varmint hunter in mind. The 308 Winchester upper receiver group can easily be swapped out for any mil spec Colt upper receiver chambered in 223 Remington, which of course is 5.56 by 45 NATO. The, uh, the fact that all operating controls are ambidextrous, including the magazine release, bolt catch and safety makes for versatility and ease of use. You can depend on the new Colt SP901 to take the shot of your lifetime. So this is being marketed primarily as a hunting gun. Uh, I hope Colt did their background check because I don't know. Uh, I, I can tell you that, yes, if you wanted to shoot a prairie dog in Texas with this, not a problem. Whitetail hunting in Maine, I don't know. I can tell you that you damn well couldn't use it to hunt whitetails in Pennsylvania. You can't use a semi-auto rifle in Pennsylvania. So uh, one of my cons or elk hunting in Colorado, is it legal to use a semi-auto rifle to hunt elk in Colorado? Somebody let me know because I, I don't remember. 
Um, the, I, I used to go elk hunting, uh, by myself in, uh, Wyoming. Uh, and I don't believe, I don't even think I ever checked because it was just not something I would do, but I don't believe that semi-auto rifles are okay for big game hunting in Wyoming. Uh, so that's one of the things. When I ever see like an AR platform marketing as a hunting rifle, um, I think fine if it's okay in your state, but if you're the kind of person that travels a lot to hunt, it may not be that rifle that's the one size do it all. But if it's legal where you hunt and where you travel to, a 308 N223 single rifle like this, uh, it, it does do a lot. And uh, because the uh, the mounting of the optics would be on the upper, you could swap them out and you're going to maintain zero. How cool is that? Um, it, it, at least that's the way this thing looks, that that's the way that this would be. Yeah, I, I, I can't see how it wouldn't be the case. Uh, but it looks like a damn nice rifle. And... Uh, I kind of want one. It's also very heavy, though. It's a nine-pound, four, uh, nine-nine-point-four pound rifle, uh, empty. So loaded up with, uh, it's it would be uh, it would be kind of heavy with, uh, you know, like a thirty-round pack or something in it. Um, it accepts mil-spec, uh, five-point-five-six uppers. It doesn't say here if there's any type of limitation on the magazine. I can't see how there would be, but there might be. Sometimes people build stuff on an AR platform uh, and modify the lower so that it is a sporting uh, gun. Uh, because even in a lot of states where you can use a uh, semi-auto rifle, uh, they have cartridge uh, capacity limitations. And it's pretty hard to say that, the, that your, your weapon has the limitation. Like It's not like plugging a shotgun. It's either on or off. It's, it, you know, if, it, if it will take a 30-round mag, if you have a 30-round mag, but it wasn't in there, you see what I mean. So sometimes there's been places where I've seen that done too, where they, they limit something so that it's specifically a hunting rifle. I think this would be an awesome rifle, though, for hunting and for home defense and for anything else. Um, it, it really would be awesome. Now, I want to say one more thing about this uh, whole, you know, which is the best first AR thing. Um, somebody came back on the blog and basically said that a civilian should just go to a 308. That all of the advantages of the 5.56 are about weight and carrying more ammo and stuff like that. That doesn't really pertain to the civilian. I don't agree with that. If you've never shot an AR before, if you're not familiar with the platform, let me put it this way, there is nothing else out there, especially when you look at shooting with iron sights, that you shoot like an AR. Uh, when you shoot an AR, your nose is up on that charging handle. For someone that's new to centerfire rifles, and even if you're not, but you're new to the AR platform, uh, you generally are going to have a lot more of the whole flinching and, and, and what have you when you're learning to shoot that platform, when you're banging away with a 308 versus a 5.56. A 5.56 is so easy to shoot, it's a great entry point. Now, with this gun, you could go ahead and get your 308, and you could practice with less expensive ammo, and get more familiar with the platform. When you put optics on the AR, it kind of turns it into, it's like shooting any other weapon. So if you're going to put optics on it, what I just said is not as critical. But I would I would really ask you guys to do something for me. You guys that are you know getting into ARs or already have ARs, learn to shoot the dadgone thing with the military iron sights. Please, uh, it will blow you away how easy it actually is when you learn to do it right and how accurate the weapon is, how easy it is to maintain groups of you know five, six inches with iron sights at 250 meters. 
It's really not as hard as you would think. I know when I was a young guy in the military, I thought I knew everything there was about shooting, and I was like, I'm just going to walk in there and qualify expert, and, and I did, you know. Um, but I learned a lot, too, from those guys teaching you how to shoot in the military, and specifically learning to shoot the M16, you know, slash AR platform. And uh, it's different, and it's really awesome. And I think you really owe it to yourself, and this would – It's not built that way. Uh, I guess it's got some irons on it. I don't know what they look like, though. I've never actually put my hands on one. Um, but just a straight-up uh, standard stock military-style AR would be a good thing to have in anybody's collection. And if you're the kind of person that has more than one, hey, consider this. Uh, you know, A lot of you guys have five, six, seven ARs. Have one that stays that way. Have one that stays that way and train with it. Shoot with it. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. So this one comes from David B. And... Um, Remember a long time ago, there was a guy named Jamie Oliver that was on TV, and I used to watch his show, and I brought some information to you. I told you about something called pink slime. Pink slime, for those who don't know, is after they've kind of like just got all the meat they can from a cow, and there's little bits of meat here and there that were like in touch with the intestines and stuff like that. This stuff's commonly called renderings, and it's fat and tallow and little bits of meat. What they would do generally is just sell it off to a dog factory, dog food factory. Well, then they came up with this pink slime where basically they use chemicals and a centrifuge and they spin it and then they, it's like coated in E. coli. So then they wash it in ammonia and then they wash the ammonia off. And any ground meat product in the United States can contain up to 20% pink slime. And that includes, yes, the meat you would buy at a, at a grocery store. So you go into the grocery store and it says ground beef. 90% uh, lean. That's good stuff. You buy that, it could be have pink slime and up to 20% by U.S. labeling laws. Well, of course, McDonald's. <laughs> of course, McDonald's has been using pink slime. Well, that's about to change. McDonald's is, cha is changing its burger recipe to take the pink slime out of its meat. Let me, let me read this to you, uh, and this is on Business Insider. McDonald's is changing the recipe it uses for its burgers in the U.S. after a lengthy campaign by TV chef and food activist Jamie Oliver reports the Daily Mail. The fast food juggernaut used ammonium hydroxide, an additive typically found in household cleaning products to kill bacteria in the, its U.S. meat. Oliver calls it pink slime. Uh, the article here doesn't really explain what I just explained to you. That's what I did at first. It's not just they wash it with ammonia. It's the, why they wash it with ammonia. Because it's, it's the pieces of meat that normally would be given to dog food factories. Okay? In his show, Jamie Oliver's Food Revolution, Oliver said that the beef producers use the additive on beef that's normally made into dog food and wash it until it's able to be eaten by humans. McDonald's denies that Oliver had anything to do with it, saying that the decision was, quote, not related to any particular event, but rather to support our effort to align our global beef raw material standards. <laughs> so what does this mean for McDonald's? It's making changes to its supply chain. The reason McDonald's U.S. meat has ammonia hydroxide is its beef supplier, Beef Products Inc., uses it. Now the chain has decided to remove BPI products from its McDonald's system. McDonald's doesn't use the additive in its meat in And in many other countries, such as Canada and the UK, our tribal Burger King and Taco Bell earlier caved to Oliver's campaign too and seem to have transitioned well. The big question for McDonald's mass consumer base is, will the burgers taste the same? Yeah, they will. They'll taste like crap, just like they do now. They should, but hopefully they will contain some higher quality meat. 
Um, don't bet on it. But at least the pink slams come out. But don't you love how, how companies like McDonald's go, I have nothing to do with Jamie Oliver telling like 20 million Americans that we were putting, you know, uh, basically ammonia washed ass meat into their burger. That's what basically it is. Ammonia washed ass meat. That's great. You know, we, that didn't have anything to, remember when, uh, what's the guy, Morgan Spurlock did the whole, uh, the, thir- you know, 30 or 90 days or whatever it was where he ate nothing but McDonald's and he almost died. His liver turned into like this, like fat marbled piece of crap and it took him like nine months to fully recover from eating McDonald's for 30 days. And then all of a sudden McDonald's has new healthier menu options and they, they stopped forcing supersizing down everybody's throat. And, and then, and then they're like, oh, but no, man, it had, it didn't have anything to do with what this guy did over. It doesn't matter that millions of people watched it. It's on YouTube. And, and everybody's sharing it with each other and people are like not coming to McDonald's now because of this and it's hurting our business no no that had nothing to do with it we just we just decided one day out of the goodness of our hearts to make some more uh, healthy food so um, there you go one man can make a difference now uh, in the comments section one of these ass clowns here uh, said it's sad that it the sat here it is uh, Carlisle said uh, the sad part is, is that it took a Brit to force them into change, not an American. Uh, let me respond to that, cause that's just stupid. I, I hate when anybody says, oh, you guys in America, you guys in Britain, it's just idiots. Quit acting like idiots. So, maybe somebody will tell this guy to listen or something, and maybe you'll hear what I'm about to say. You're a moron. Uh, this is a huge effort. And if it wasn't for the US-based TV producer, uh, and network that put him on TV in America, it would have happened. So this is something, and I, I, and then there's more snide comments about Americans are idiots, they're the last ones to do anything, and, you know, um, what's the old saying from the Bible? Get the uh, speck out of your, get the log out of your eye before you complain about the uh, speck in your neighbors. Uh, I think we all, and the reason I bring that up is not just to like, you know, tell off this guy, uh, because we're all guilty of it from time to time. Be careful when you find yourself saying things like, well those idiots over in that country or whatever, because, it's the kind of like innate bias that leads you to devalue human life in another place where all of a sudden it's okay to go bomb them. It, it really, that's how it starts, folks. And I don't think Britain's going to bomb us or we're going to bomb Britain. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying it's the same dynamic at play right now. All those guys in Iran are crazy. No, all of those guys in Iran are a bunch of people trying to feed their kids like you and me uh, with some crazy people in charge. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. And now on the climate change front, this came to me from Matt. Matt, thank you for sending me this. This is an interesting piece. Um, I'm not going to go down the road of why I think man-made climate change due to CO2 is nonsense and foolish and stupid and a scam. Um, that's not what this is really all about, even though it's like just peppered through the whole thing. This is on the Mail Online. They have some of the best journalists there. They really do. We need more people like them here in America. And I know what I just said, uh, but I'm not putting them down. I'm quite the contrary. I'm saying they really do uh, some journalism in that place. They do a lot of trash mag stuff too, but man, I get a lot of information from the mail online. Um, so anyway, uh, here's the headline. The new ice age, climate change could slow as the sun simmers down. Uh, the last time the sun went to sleep, there were frost fairs on the Thames River and ice extended for miles into the North Sea. Now scientists have unearthed evidence that the sun is poised to enter its first period of hibernation since the Little Ice Age in the early 1700s. If they're right, and it's a big if, it means global warming caused by greenhouse gases could be less severe over the next few decades than predicted. 
The sun goes through regular cycles of activity and peaks every 11 years. During its most frenzied periods, huge magnetic storms erupt from the sun while vast sunspots appear on its surface. But during the quiet part of its cycle, the solar minimum, eruptions and sunspots are rarer. Astronomers say the sun should now be building up to its next maximum and that sunspots should be appearing on its surface. But these three separate studies reported at an astronomy conference in America this week have found clues the sun is not waking up on schedule. Didn't we just have a giant solar flare, though? I mean, as a rebuttal of that. Dr. Frank Hill of America's National Solar Observatory showed that a regular jet stream current within the sun, which was due in 2008 and 2009, has failed to start up again. That doesn't sound good. Meanwhile, Dr. Richard Otflock of Sacramento Peak Observatory, who has been studying the sun's atmosphere, the corona, for 40 years, found that a telltale march of magnetic activity towards the poles that heralds the start of the solar maximum has failed to materialize. And Matthew Penn, also the National Solar Observatory, has shown that the strength of the magnetic field inside the sunspots has been much weaker than expected in its steady decline. If this continues, the sun will have lost its spots completely by 2022. The last time the sun went quiet was during the Maunder Minimum from 1645 to 1715, when Europe and America suffered a succession of bitterly cold winters called the Little Ice Age. You read the rest of it if you want to on your own here. Um, This is not about global warming. This is much more important. This is about climate change, actual climate change that actually occurs. It has occurred since the dawn of the earth and will continue to, to occur until one day the sun uses, uh, uses up all its hydrogen, turns it all into helium, turns it into a giant red exploding orb, and eats the earth. And up until that point, there will be climate change on earth, and it will be driven mostly by the activity or inactivity of the sun. And this is why I think climate change is a relevant issue, just not taxing carbon to pay for nonsense and global government bullshit. But the fact that the climate can and does change and being prepared to deal with it as it occurs, whether we get warmer or cooler, doesn't matter. What happens is you become accustomed to a nor- what you think is a normal, and everything you do, you kind of go all in on that normal. So agricultural goes all in on what's normal for Kansas or Missouri or Nebraska. And then if the normal changes and you're all in, you have nothing to mitigate your loss. And this is why I think we've lived pretty foolish as people, and we haven't really learned that lesson. And we even do things like we go all in on warming and say, well, you know, the the planet's going to be two degrees warmer in 20 years. You don't know. And here's the perfect example of not knowing. And even if I was wrong, which I don't think I am, but if I was wrong about CO2, doesn't matter here now, does it, if the sun gets nice and cool, um, comparatively speaking, and the temperatures drop by three or four degrees globally. I uh, don't think it can't happen because it has happened before. The the planet has been much warmer and much cooler in different periods of time in history. And to think that what we have today is the way it's just supposed to be. It's supposed to be this way, guys. It's just foolish. Um, and I'll tell you what. For all of the hoopla about how terrible global warming would be, a repeat of the Little Ice Age would cost a lot more lives and be a much bigger problem. It would be a much bigger problem for this planet to be a couple degrees cooler on average than a couple degrees warmer on average. I know that may be hard to believe, but... And let me reiterate. When I was a kid in the 80s and the 70s growing up, they had people on TV all the time telling us smog was going to cause global cooling. They really did. The guy that launched the global warming movement, Maurice Strong, from the United Nations, who is an oil billionaire... It's all fact. Check it if you don't believe me. Worry Strong launched the damn thing in 1978. Global cooling was the problem back then. Okay? 
Um, oil billionaire currently in China helping the Chinese learn to trade carbon credits. All right? When the planet stopped being so cold, and it was bitterly cold in the 70s and 80s, folks. I don't know if you remember or not. And then in the 90s, it started to warm. They just switched gears. Okay, now it's global warming. And now that they've had like this, this kind of this fluctuation, it's gotten warmer, it's gotten cooler, it's gotten warmer, it's gotten warmer. It's global weirding. And it's, 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 uh, it's climate change. And now it gets, the, the, and I love the way this is written. It's, it's so pervasive. Climate change could slow as the sun simmers down. Well, no, it just, it, <laughs> think about it. That's the title of the, the new ice age. Climate change could slow as the sun simmers down. So the, the only climate change, of course, is global warming. So global cooling wouldn't be, oh, wait a minute, that is, I don't know, I'm so confused. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to make this political. I just want to point out that you can be concerned about the climate of the planet. You can be concerned about the ecology of the planet. You can be concerned about our future uh, and our, what our climate's going to be like uh, without believing one way or the other politically in this nonsense that they've used to divide us. And I do believe that we are a lot more like or a lot more likely within the lifetime of the average person that's around today to have to deal with severe consequences of more severe winters than more severe summers. I really do. I think there's a lot of things that we can adapt do to adapt when it's just um warmer. Uh there's a lot of things that we can do. Uh there's not a lot we can do when we get really long winters and low levels of sunshine. Uh, and, and all of the extra energy needs that come with that. So uh, something to keep an eye on. You don't have to agree with me, but do check out the article. It might open your eyes to something that's possible that generally has been eradicated from our vernacular. Um, this is uh, a real quick email here I'll give you guys. Um, the guy, is, it's really kind of a long email, but basically he just sent me an email about these 12-volt LED lighting strips that look pretty cool, and they might be something you want to check out. I'm going to put out a link on today's show notes on them, but they almost look like a tape measure because they have like markings on them for inches and centimeters. And then they, it's like real thin. I'd say they're probably about a quarter inch wide, maybe a half inch wide, one centimeter wide, two millimeters thick. There you go. Look at the specs, Jack. And about every inch they have a little tiny LED light. And you just stick them. They're like, you pull a little sticky thing off the back of them, and there's places where it's okay to cut them, and they're marked where you can cut them. So you stick them up under like cabinets and all different types of places like that. And uh, then there's a little transformer that you plug in, and then that transformer takes your AC, converts it to 12 volts of DC, and then provides this lighting. And it looks like very nice lighting and very, very energy efficient. So it would be good for somebody running alternative energy or just looking to cut your lighting bill, installs easily. But my mind immediately said, aha, if they run on 12 volts and I keep backup batteries charged, I could have a system where I disconnect my transformer and run them straight on 12-volt batteries, and now I've got great, long-lasting emergency lighting strategically placed throughout my entire property during a long-term power outage uh, that will be very, very low drain against a great big giant you know, um, marine-grade or better-grade 12-volt uh, uh, battery. So I thought it was awesome. They also make the little 12-volt batteries that are you know about double the size 
of a uh, of like a, a, a the six volt batteries that go on a lantern flashlight. You get a couple of those and set them up, and you could have a little charger for them. And that little battery would probably run these light strips for an ungodly amount of time. I know uh, it's what I use on my deer feeder, and they go two months without needing a charge running a deer feeder. Uh, so I, I would think that you'd get an awful lot of life out of them. So I think they're cool. Again, I'll put a link to them today. They're on a site called Cool Tools or KK.org. And uh, it looks like a pretty cool site. I'll maybe have to bookmark them and uh, subscribe to their feed or something like that. But flexible LED strip lights, another option for backup power and alternative energy use. And with that, we've wrapped up the show. We went a little bit long today, but I had a bunch of stuff I wanted to cover. I hope I didn't get into too many rants for you there, especially at the end. You know, global warming nonsense always gets me fired up. I want to reiterate one thing about that, though. I want you to understand something. If you're just frustrated by this, I'm, I'm going to get the emails today. I get the emails all the time. The two passionate emails I get, you're killing yourself eating too much meat, Jack. Go away. Leave me alone. And global warming's real, and here's why. Um, you don't have to agree with me. I don't care if you agree with me. I talk about it very little on our show anymore. I really do. Uh, I can give you a hundred reasons that are scientifically valid to why I don't believe in it. But it doesn't matter. What matters is the climate does change. And we need to be prepared for things to change. And the better way to look at it, here's a word I use a lot, right? The climate shifts. There's no such thing as normal. There's no such thing as normal for Earth's climate unless you take a, a really back up and see these what we call big temperature swings for what they are, actually quite small as far as the cosmos concerns is concerned. For us, they're huge. But on a cosmic spectrum, a couple points up and down at Celsius are, are meaningless cosmically. And that's where the stability is in that huge, wide range that's very comfortable and very uncomfortable at extremes on both sides. And it's something we have to be prepared for, for the climate to shift. We also have to be prepared for what else to shift? Our financial climate to shift. Our technology climate to shift. Our global uh, political climate to shift at any given time. And in the end, whether you think the Iranians need to be bombed or not, a war with Iran is a bad shift for us. Nothing good will come from it, especially in the immediate term. And it will be something we have to be prepared for and deal with. Um, our, our economy burning to the ground and this debt-backed currency monopoly game being burned to the ground may have long-term benefits if we rebuild it with something better. But while it's burning down, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. It's bad unless we're prepared for the shift. So... You know, I had a call or an email earlier from somebody who said, how do I convince people in my life that self-sufficiency is the way to go? Look at history. Look at the shifts. And ask yourself, when the next shift comes, no matter whose fault it is, or no matter what particular sector shifts, do I want to be ahead of the shift? Do I want to be able to deal with the shift? Or do I want the shift to run over me and harm me and damage me and damage my family? Self-sufficiency is the greatest thing you can do to have choices and options. The people that get hurt in shifts are not necessarily people that are weak or stupid or foolish. They're people that end up backed into a corner that only have one option when the shift occurs. The people that have multiple options can run scenarios through their mind, and if the one, if they, even if they do something and it turns out to be a bad idea, they can back up and try something else. You always want multiple options. That's what self-sufficiency and self-reliance lead to. With that, this is the Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we 
Nobody up 